Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features a conversation with Bob Eisminger, class of 1988, an entrepreneur and founder and former CEO of Nightpoint Systems. He is also a member of the board of directors at Chaminade University of Honolulu and Patriapps Software Venture Studio, as well as the board of experts at Birthing of Giants Fellowship Program. Bob is a serial entrepreneur, an investor in veteran-led companies, and a former CEO. He founded Nightpoint Systems in 2005. After graduating from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Bob served in the United States Army as an Air Defense Artillery Platoon Leader Tactical Control Officer in Germany, a Public Affairs Officer at Fort Bliss in Texas, and an Airborne and Jungle Operations Expert. Bob is a graduate of the Birthing of Giants Fellowship Program, where post-exit entrepreneurs teach business owners how to grow companies for the purpose of acquisition, and is the recipient of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award for the Mid-Atlantic Region in the category of Government Services. In this episode of On Point, Bob discusses how his West Point and Army experiences helped him develop his $100 million business what it's like to work alongside the United States government, and the importance of surrounding yourself with people that will help make you a better person. He also talks about what it was like serving in Germany during the Cold War and fall of the Berlin Wall, and how giving back to West Point graduates continues the same cycle that ultimately afforded him great success in business. Now, please enjoy this interview between Bob Eisminger and your hosts, Tim Shaw and Lance Dietz. Welcome to On Point, founded by Eddie Kang, West Point, class of 2008. I'm Tim Shaw, West Point, class of 2004. And I'm Lance Dietz, class of 2008. And today we're joined by Bob Eisenminger from the class of 1988. Bob, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Really excited about today's podcast episode. Let's get into our first segment, AAR, or for our non-military listeners, After Action Review. In this segment, we'd like to touch on specifically what other veterans can learn from you, your process, and your journey. To start off, could you please share about your decision to attend West Point? Yeah, so I came from a military family. And so when I think back to when I actually started thinking about West Point and if that could be the place for me, I was fortunate enough to have a brother who attended four years ahead. And so when he started thinking about it, I guess I started doing the same. Now, my father was a, is a retired lieutenant colonel. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't think that had something to do with it. Pretty decent lifestyle. You got to move around the country, have tons of friends. And so I saw a lot of going to West Point and being part of the military, really from a social standpoint as a young kid and uh, knew it as a great way of life for my parents to see the world and also for their kids to do the same and get a lot of different experiences. Your brother, he was a second lieutenant when you joined as a plebe. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, he graduated in 84 in May. I went in in July. And actually, I would say probably one of his first official duties is he had to put on the uniform right after I graduated high school because I was on the, a lot of people don't know this, but I was on the delayed entry program to enlist. And I was supposed to be heading to basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And I got accepted to West Point. And so there was a part of me that thought, West Point would coordinate with the regular army or the reserves. And then I wanted to have to go to basic training, but I guess the recruiter had a different idea because he was calling the house wondering where I was. And so my brother, who was then a second lieutenant, had to go down to the recruiting station and 
clean up the mess that I had caused when I was down at the beach for celebrating Beach Week before going to West Point. And what was your experience like at West Point? Did you walk hours? Were you a good cadet? Just generally, what type of cadet were you? Well, you just heard that story, right? And so you can kind of answer the question. I definitely walked hours, just slightly over 100. And I wasn't trying to get over 100, but somehow I made it. I had 108 when I graduated. Uh, the majority of those coming during the second semester Cal year. And we don't need to get into what they were for, but I think all cadets, I was your typical cadet that did a lot of things that were, you know, fringe regulations to have a better cadet experience. Uh, and eventually you get caught. Everybody gets caught. And then the one thing that uh, West Point will teach you is uh, that when you get caught doing something wrong, that there's accountability for it and responsibility and there's consequences. I will tell you that spending time on the area, it does build character. It makes you a little bit tougher. It gives you a little more grit. I will tell you that being on the area and losing some privileges, my grades were definitely better that semester than others. Bob, going back to your point about the advice your brother gave. Did you get any hours that you thought were complete BS? I got a major slug, and that was that was well-deserved. As a Cal, you're not supposed to go to the first D club, and I did, right? And I also happened to be under 21. That one I deserved. And, and it's interesting. I had lunch with a 2010 grad today that kind of served as an unofficial mentor. One of the things that we talked about was area tours. I shared with him that a, uh, a smaller infraction that got me uh, 20 hours on the area I got pulled over by the MPs for going 37 in the 25 up Washington Road. Now, the laws of physics will tell you that that's physically impossible with a five-ton vehicle, especially the ones that we had at West Point back in 1987. And I actually appealed. I appealed the 20 hours I got, but was told by the regimental attack that I had to walk them anyway. So 20 hours I really didn't deserve. So interestingly enough, you've, you take 20 away from 108 you have 88, which is my class year. I think there's a certain type of prestige associated with being a centurion. Uh, yeah, a century man, there's there's some honor to that, I guess. It shows you're willing to take responsibility for your actions. Um, and you, you learn from it, right? I can tell you I didn't get an hours my first year. That's for sure. At any point during walking hours or when you got hours, did you consider quitting? No. In fact, I, I would tell you that when you're on the area, you have a couple of things you can do. One, you can feel sorry for yourself and you can get down and depressed that you don't have privileges. Or two, you can make the most of it. And I can tell you and I can think of some of the guys that I was on the area with that I probably wouldn't have been friends with otherwise because I was in Fourth Ridge, barracks over by the gymnasium. And I became friends with guys in my class uh, who were in First and Second Ridge that I otherwise probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have hung out with. There's a certain honor for paying the consequences for doing something wrong. So you turn walking hours into a positive experience, but were there any classes or mentors that were like really helpful with your development as a cadet or person? I can tell you a couple of guys stand out and people always say, who are the professors you remember? There were a couple of them. One was a Lieutenant Colonel Fred Black. Colonel Black was a guy who would talk not only about what was, what was the subject for the class, but as a Vietnam vet era guy. Colonel Black would tell you about the Army, and he would tell you a lot about the Army. And you'd spend parts of probably every class talking about his experience in Vietnam, his experience in a, an integrated Army, you know, experiences at Fort Bragg, anything and everything. And for that, I'll always be grateful to Colonel Black, who on occasion uh, I've seen over the last 35 years, uh, 
most recently at Arsen Chain of Command down at Shaw Air Force Base in North Carolina, and he's doing great. I can tell you another individual is a guy named Major Belton, who taught methodology of research and design class. Uh, and that's a class that I actually reach back to over and over again when I see statistics and, and I want to break down how they got the answer they got to. And I want to break down what people are thinking about when they look at numbers. And that's a class that comes back and a professor that comes back to me over and over and over. And at West Point, what was your major? I didn't declare a major. I was the last year that you only had to choose a track. And so you either chose uh, HPE or MSE or HPA. It's a long time ago, but I chose uh, humanities and public affairs, I think is what it was called at the time. And so I just have a general engineering degree. What branch did you decide and why? I didn't decide the branch. I decided the location and uh, backed into everything. Now, I'm, I'm one of those guys, as you can tell, I had 108 area tours. I finished in the top 90% of my class. And so I really had to take a look at where I wanted to go first, right? And so I didn't know if I wanted to make the Army a career at the time. Uh, what I did know is that I wanted to be stationed in Germany. Uh, I'd lived there as a kid when my dad was stationed in Frankfurt, and I wanted to go back there. And so we had done some straw polls in terms of branches and locations. And I knew that if I went air defense, artillery, that I was almost guaranteed to be stationed in Germany. I had two other branches available to me, field artillery, which I probably would have been stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and infantry, which I could have saw myself stationed at Fort Drum, New York. And as much as I loved West Point, I didn't really grow to love it until after I was gone a little bit. So I really wanted to get out of New York. I did not want to be stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and uh, air defense artillery seemed like the way to go, and, and it was. And can you talk us through your experience in Germany and the Army overall? Yeah, so Germany, a magical place, climate close to northern Pennsylvania, somewhat like West Point in many ways, uh, but interesting time for our military, for our country, and for the German people. Now, the Cold War was in full force. The Russians were not our friends back in the day. The Berlin Wall fell when I was over there. I played on a German soccer team. It was a magical experience. What else happened when I was stationed over there? The first Gulf War happened. Uh, certain individuals were cherry-picked from air defense units across Germany, but we also still had a mission in Germany with the Cold War, so m many of us were left behind. During the first Gulf War, I was uh, on duty in Germany, making sure that the Russians didn't invade. Can you share a bit about your decision transitioning from the military? When I left Germany, it was on the heels of the first Gulf War being over. We just talked about it. I was unable to participate in and so I kind of looked at my career, if you're going to stand for 20, you know, back in the day, there was always a thought process of war happens every 20, 25 years. And so uh, the way I looked at it was it probably wasn't going to be the next one. I probably wasn't going to be around for. After deactivating two Hawk batteries in Germany, it seemed like, uh, like a good time to take a break in service and serve our nation in, in other ways. And so PCS back from Germany to Fort Bliss, Texas, and uh, let them know I wasn't going to the advanced course. And uh, I got assigned to a real crappy job in headquarters battery where I was in the basement of the headquarters building of the air defense school working for a major who wasn't a very happy guy. After having a conversation with my father about the lack of you know, professional um, satisfaction of working, one, for this individual and two, doing the job that I was doing, he said, well, go find another job. I said, give me some more direction on that, dad. And he goes, well, get out of the basement. 
go out the back door of the headquarters building and look for other shingles and look for a shingle that has a, a rank higher than major on it and go tell them that you're in the army for another year and you're looking for some stuff to do. And so I did that. I walked out the back door. I looked to the left and I saw public affairs, Lieutenant Colonel Dennis Prevo. And I just walked over and I knocked on his office door and I said, I said, sure, you got a few minutes and uh, told him my story, told him I was getting out, told him I could be a, um, I could be a free resource for him for about a year if he had the ability to get me assigned to his unit. He made two phone calls and I was no longer working for Unhappy Major. And Bob, as you were transitioning out of the Army, can you just give us a brief walkthrough of what you did immediately post-military, the jobs you held, and then we'll get to Ninth Point, which I think is going to be really exciting, but just a brief overview and then we'll dive in from there. Back in the early 90s, uh, a good amount of junior officers were, were getting out of the military, and there were some boutique firms that serviced those individuals, helped them, you know, at job fair weekends where you could get 10 interviews in over a two-day period. I'm sure the same kind of thing happens these days. And so as I went through that process, it was interesting because every, everyone wanted uh, West Point graduates to come work for them. And so the, the interviews, it was kind of like a cattle call. You interview for 35, 45 minutes to an hour. They may ask you to come back the next day. And it, and it was interesting because every, every company I was I was interested in, I, I got a request to come back and, and talk some more. And it was inter- interesting, too, because they, they gave you a list of companies they wanted you to interview for. Even if you didn't want to go to that company, they still asked you to take part in the interview because they thought it would be beneficial, you know, good practice. And so I remember there was one company that I had no desire to work for it. It was like a mobile home manufacturing company. And so I answered everything backwards. It was like a Seinfeld episode. Everything the opposite of the way I would answer it. And the guys, they loved me and they wanted me to come work for them. So interesting process. I ended up signing on with a pharmaceutical company, did sales, sales leadership, leadership management development at the home office and was with them for a while. And in the last job doing leadership and management development, that's where I really decided that I wanted to start my own organization outside of the industry. I wanted to have the ability to create my own culture to make sure that people had the right resources to do the jobs that they were signed up to do, to provide a good environment where folks would feel motivated, uh, have passion for what they do and feel like they were part of a mission. And Bob, just taking a step back, I think this is so interesting. When you started at West Point, did you have any thoughts of staying in the military for a career like your father did? Did you know that you would likely get out, you know, before that and like go to corporate America? But what was going through your head, I guess, throughout West Point and throughout the army, thinking about the future of your career? That's a great question because I think many people who go to West Point were like myself. You wanted to serve. The the Army seemed like a great place to do that. You had visions of serving a long time in the military. And I think originally when I went there, I thought I'd do 20 years like my dad because everyone wants to be like their dad, at least if they have a good dad, right? My dad was phenomenal, phenomenal human being. I I loved that man. I respected that man. And he did everything he could to, to make sure his family had what they needed. I wanted to be like him. I think I originally started with a plan to graduate from West Point and make it a career. And then life happens, right? Air defense is an interesting branch. There was the thought process back in the day that air defense eats their young. I worked with the Hawk missile system. And depending on who you talk to, the acronym HAWK meant husband and wife killer. It meant holiday and weekend killer. And so, you know, a lot of people give us air defenders a hard time. But I would tell you, Uh, We were guys who put in a lot of hours and pulled a lot of duty, especially back in the days where the Cold War was uh, was reality and people worried about the the Soviet Union and the Russians coming. You know, we had a real mission. 
think back 30, 35 years ago, you know, we had like 350,000 soldiers in Germany. It's not that way anymore. Maybe they're, well, there's more there now, but a couple of years ago, I think they maxed out at about 35,000. So it was a different world back then. And so you get out, you take this advice, you go work in corporate America for a bit and then decide to start your own company. You know, today there's tons of resources for someone to be an entrepreneur or a founder of a company. At that point, like, how did you navigate that? Who'd you turn to to help you start this company? Yeah, it's interesting. I turned to some buddies, right? One of the first guys was uh, the younger brother of my roommate from time in the army and fellow army soccer player. His younger brother had been doing federal sales and software and hardware for years. That's where I started over a beer thinking about, hey, what could we build? Uh, and then we got a couple other guys involved. We were both sales guys in two different ways. And we knew that we needed someone technical. So someone who was a brilliant technologist. And we found that guy. His brother came along with him. And his brother was a kind of a brilliant strategic kind of guy. It was interesting, too, because every person that came and built the original team it was a collegiate athlete, right? That was, I think, part of the thing, too, is... Uh, and it helped me when I looked for other people that I was going to bring within the organization. I looked for collegiate athletes who had good experience, good head on their shoulders. Because for me, those are folks who wanted to win. Those were folks who were competitive. And most importantly, those are folks who didn't like losing. It's such an interesting point. Like there have been a handful of guests that we've had on and this thread of the intersection of military experience, sports background, and entrepreneurship seems to be common for a lot of people that have gone on to be pretty successful. Yeah, it's crazy. So I'll tell you this, you know, just in the Washington DC area, there are, um, there's no less than five army soccer players that have started businesses in the Washington DC area in, in technology. And so there's an ecosystem and there's a huge ecosystem of West Point graduates, especially around the Washington DC area that have entrepreneurial skills, a mindset, and we are different than the other academies. We're totally different because they don't have the same thing. I will run into, or I used to run into meetings in the DC area, GovCon practices. I'd run into West Pointers all the time. Air Force guys, I think the majority of them don't land in the DC region for whatever reason. You know, a lot of those guys are pilots. I can think of two Air Force graduates that are predominant that are around the space in Washington, DC, in the, in the small business, mid sized business area. And those guys are rock stars, right? Naval Academy guys, very few, very few. Yeah. I mean, it's a big thread that we hear a lot. So in 2005, you start Night Point Systems, you know, punchline 15 years later, I think it's like 500 or so employees you sell for 250 million. So a lot to cover in there. My first question is just, I mean, that's an incredible outcome. When you guys were starting this, in your minds, did you have any idea that this is what it would become? So I'll tell you yes and no. We were a purposefully built company. We originally started out as a VAR trying to get some service, so a value-added reseller trying to get some services. And we realized very quickly within the first probably 12 months that, that we could be a really good VAR and you know have a great life, but there would never be like a, a great exit at the end, right? Because you just don't have the recurring, recurring revenue for the most part. As we were growing and as we were growing with, you know, lower margins as a reseller, four, five, six percent, you know, one of the things that we decided to do was to shed that part of the business and really focus on services. It was within a couple of years that we no longer did value added reselling. We focused on services and we made a few very pivotal hires over the next few years that would help us, 
really kind of morphed the business and changed directions. And so one of them, uh, another army vet, an enlisted guy who was, had incredible relationships and skill set around infrastructure and had built uh, incredible relationships. And so he was, he was one of our first hires as we decided to get in the infrastructure business. The great thing was back then, the president had signed data center consolidation initiative, really trying to reduce the footprint of the federal government and the amount of data centers that they had. And we all of a sudden became a very good infrastructure company that focused on data center migration, data center consolidation. And we were really, really good at it. You start getting a good reputation within a niche. uh, And we had that for data center consolidation and moves. I'm curious, like kind of as you were building the company, I mean, how much of your experience in the military dictated how you built the team, the processes you used, the culture you established, et cetera? My experience at West Point and then in the military, it really helped in a lot of ways. One, it helped with, you know, if you just throw a bunch of people together and you don't have any process, you soon will find a bunch of people who are frustrated. And part of that process is the accountability and responsibility for people to take certain roles. And within our organization, we really wanted to make sure that people were doing jobs. One, that they were technically competent, but two, ones that they were confident and even overconfident that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they had the right resources the right experience, the right certifications, so that they could perform at a high level. You take a couple of those things, and, and to me, that's what the military is all about, right? You take a bunch of people, you pull them together, you put some processes in place, you make people responsible, you keep people accountable for what they're supposed to do, then you create a super team. And so at Night Point Systems, we started with a super team. You know, a great technologist is our CTO, amazing sales folks. Our CEO was an incredible uh, strategic tactician. And all these guys have had great careers elsewhere in software, hardware, sales company. Uh, but they also knew the services business. The other key thing is we always look to hire A players who would be added to the team. And there would be some synergistic effect that would make the team and the company that much better. Any particular like challenging experiences that you had to navigate through I'm curious if you could share like one or two, if any of those happened. There were some personality differences you have to sometimes uh, work through. We had two brothers that were part of the senior leadership team. And sometimes two brothers working together is not always the best thing. And so there were some challenges there. But at the end of the day, these guys knew they had to work out their challenges and do what was best for the organization in terms of getting along during business hours. And eventually it all works works out, right? So I would say that was that was challenging. We had some uh, some challenging situations with one of our customers on occasion. The customer didn't really understand the contract that we were working under. The customer also didn't understand that the reason we were having people leave that contract wasn't because of the culture of Night Point Systems. It was because of the culture of that government organization, that he was the principal driver of the culture and that I could do everything I could to create a culture under my folks. When he would come in from the sides with toxicity, it just didn't work. And it was interesting. We had lost a few people. We were still accomplishing the mission, getting the job done. He called a weekly meeting. He wanted me there as a CEO. I went there probably nine weeks in a row on a Thursday afternoon at four o'clock downtown D.C. And at a certain point, I just said to him, I said, you know, sir, I said, you could be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. Right now, you're part of the problem. He wasn't happy initially, but I think he finally took ownership of it and realized that that he was part of the problem. We eventually lost that work. I knew I was going to miss the people. Some people were able to bring over and put them on different contracts, but I wasn't happy not to be working for that customer anymore. I want to zoom out a bit. For a lot of military veteran entrepreneurs these days, 
They think of, I think, broadly tech, and they also think a lot about dual use. Whereas, Bob, you built Nightpoint to be very much a company that serviced the government. And so I'm curious, would you recommend that area or sector for veterans who are transitioning? Or would you say it's just a lot of luck and a lot of bureaucracy? I would recommend anybody go to work for the government. And let me tell you why. Because if you can be successful in working through some of the bureaucracy, the government pays their bills. I talk to buddies of mine that are entrepreneurs and, you know, small business construction companies, you know, small business painting companies, you name it. These guys, the biggest problem they have as a small business is getting paid, right? So cash flow is always an issue. When you work for the federal government, the one thing that does happen, especially if you're a small business, is if you submit a proper invoice and your invoice is correct, you will get paid almost immediately. You want to remove the biggest headache of being an entrepreneur? Go and do business with a place that will pay you right away. I've heard nightmares of waiting 60 days, 90 days to get paid. Uh, Other companies using your work as like an interest-free loan. Government doesn't do that. In terms of going back and doing another startup, do you think you have the appetite for working to do another rodeo? Or you're like, actually, you know, I'm interested in pursuing other areas. And so we'd love to hear kind of like, What's evolved since Nightpoint Solutions and how you're thinking about opportunities now? So I will tell you, when I left Nightpoint Systems, when I sold, I tried to get a job with the company that bought us. And that was the first time I've ever tried to get a job where they didn't want me. So, you know, a little humble pie, but I get it. You don't need a couple of CEOs. I did some consulting work for the company that bought us for a little bit. And then COVID hit. It just seemed like the world slowed down a little bit. And so I woke up one day in July and said, I think I'll just go back to grad school and kind of looked around and said, all right, well, where can I get in where I don't have to take a test, where I don't have to write a really long essay? Where do I know a fellow West Point graduate who is serving in some capacity in either a business school or uh, is a professor at the college? And so that narrowed it down uh, to a few places. So I eventually got accepted to Auburn after spending literally uh, you know, 48 hours trying to do everything I could to make sure I was set up for the right place, getting a letter of recommendation from uh, a fellow Army soccer player who was working at the Auburn School of Business, taking part in an interview with a person who had a, a PhD in organizational psychology, who I really enjoyed having a conversation with them about the Auburn experience, about coming back, and actually about how much I would get out of it, but also what I might be able to help put into the program. I also looked at North Carolina, I looked at Syracuse, and at the end of the day, I wanted to go to a place that had a good football team. I wanted to go to a place that uh, one day I may want to retire to that town and you know become like a college sports uh, fanatic. Not that I'm not already, but you know, looking for some place that could be part of part of my next life. I will tell you, my my wife also went to Auburn, so she was pushing me to get my graduate degree at Auburn, and so that worked out pretty good. Amazing. Before we go to the next segment. Any general broad startup tips you have given your work at Nightpoint? I think a couple of things. One, starting a company is uh, tough. I recommend to everybody, find someone who you enjoy spending time with, not necessarily your brother or your dad or your spouse, but find someone you enjoy spending time with and, and start a company with someone else. Your network immediately becomes twice as big or, or you know, 1.5 times as big, depending if you're both West Point graduates. But I think the entrepreneurial journey is a lot more fun when you're taking the journey with someone. I had a few business partners and every single one of them provided some kind of unique ability to the organization that would help drive us further. 
And so it wasn't one plus one equals two, it was one plus one equals three. One plus one plus one plus one equals like seven or eight. And we were all good at very different things. And we all enjoyed doing different parts of the business. That whole thing was synergistic. Hire the right people, right? Pay them well. Last thing you want to do, if you look at some of the statistics of how much does it cost to replace someone who leaves your organization? And it typically, you know, if you're trying to save, you know, X amount of dollars, if that person leaves and they were really good and they fit within your organization or good for your culture, it's going to cost you their salary and then some in many instances to replace that same talent. Don't be afraid to take the journey with someone. Don't be afraid to like slice off a little some equity to get the right person to join. Now don't get don't give stuff away. We made this mistake of doing that. We brought in a couple investors in the beginning and we gave away a couple points for not a lot of money. We should have never done that because it ended up costing us more money than it was worth. But take the journey with someone. One last point that I want to round out is you said West Point entrepreneurs are different. And we actually have some Naval Academy, Air Force, Coast Guard listeners. And so not to offend them, but I'm curious for our West Point listeners, how are West Point operators, startup founders different? And nothing against any of those other services. Those guys are all great, except except the one thing I will tell you is that the West Point experience and the Army experience is there's a little more suck. It's different. You know, we don't eat off of plates in many instances when, when we're doing our jobs. We don't always get to go home every night. When you talk about going to the field in the Army, you're going to the field. It's just a different environment. I think that the bonds seem to be a little bit closer. People tend to pull together a little bit more. And I'll tell you, this this comes from one of my really good friends who's a uh, Air Force Academy grad, runs a very successful company in the Washington, D.C. area, incredibly talented individual. And he would tell you that the West Point guys stick together, take care of each other, look out for each other more than anybody else. I had a retired Navy captain that worked for me. He said the same thing. He said, you know what, you West Point guys the way you look out for each other, the way you help each other, the way you share best practices across businesses. He goes, it's, it's amazing. He, he said he wished more Naval Academy guys did that for others. You know, I think one of the questions um, that we talked about was mentorship. And there's uh, tons of older Academy grads that, that gave back when I was growing my company some almost 20 years ago now. And I see my role now as if anyone reaches out to me, I'm going to go meet with them. Young West Point graduates, Guys getting out of the service, they want to talk about, you know, whether they should go work for a big or a small. I will offer up my time to anybody because people offered up their time to me. And I think giving back to the community that you came from, that you grew up in, is so important. I can attest to that. You took a cold email from me, and here we are on this podcast. Your note on West Point reminds me of this quote that um, I have mixed thoughts about, but I think it's a powerful one, which is hard times create strong men, strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And the whole notion of sacrifice actually being something that can be beneficial to one. So I think that's pretty interesting. Let's move on to our next segment, the SOP or Standard Operating Procedure. In this segment, we're going to talk about the personal routines, habits, and words to live by that have been instrumental to our guest success. What routines or habits did you have in the military at West Point that you still adhere to? Number one, get up early. It's amazing how much you you can accomplish while the rest of the world is still asleep. I learned that when I was a kid from my father. He used to drop me off about a mile and a half from my house at the edge of my paper route. It started when I was in about seventh grade. He would drop me off at four o'clock in the morning 
when he was on his way to work. Now, a lot of times my papers weren't even there, so I just had to sit there on the corner and wait. But get up early. You do that, and it's a force multiplier. The one thing, too, that I see with a lot of military folks that it's not ingrained in everybody else is a work ethic, right? You work until the job's done. Much to my wife's chagrin, I used to spend a lot of time at the office because I had folks that I worked with that would spend a lot of time in the office. And so I typically was the first one there. I wasn't always the last one to leave. And as a leader, I don't think you want to be the last one to leave because then people think that they need to stay until you go. And so I used to push people out of the office at a decent time and tell them to get home to their families. I used to get my best work done on Saturday mornings, get up early on Saturday morning. I could have four hours of non-interrupted time. And that's the time typically when I always get the stuff done that if you didn't do it, no one would ever notice. I think the other thing that I learned a long time ago was that uh, you need to block off time for thinking. I see people who have their schedules full from, you know, 7.30 to 5.30 at night. It's like, all right, well, when are you going to when are you gonna think about all that stuff that you're having these great meetings about? You need to block off blocks of two hours, three hours, just for yourself so that you have time to think about the things that will bring value to your business instead of just doing the transactional check the box type stuff. It, it just doesn't work. I will tell you all, all through my career, I'll go back to the work ethic, right? And so you can have people who are good at their jobs. You can have people that are great at their jobs. You can have people that are salespeople that have excellent sales skills, excellent knowledge, and you can have people that are just average. So what's the multiplier? What makes one better than the other? The people who are outworked the other people. You give me someone who wants to put in a full effort, eight to 10 hours a day, I'll take them over a superstar who only wants to work, you know, show up for three, four hours a day, all day, every day. Love it. I really resonate with all your advice, especially the Saturday mornings. I feel like those are the times where you can not just like think about 50 meter targets and have to be reactionary, but start thinking um, a bit further out. There's just no substitute for work. Um, I know that sometimes we celebrate work too much. Everyone's bright in this world. And so if there's, uh, if there's something to differentiate, you got to just uh, outwork sometimes. Are there any particular people who have served as mentors beyond the military? So into your civilian career, and how did you cultivate those relationships? So it's interesting. Um, I, I, I have a bunch of folks, and I actually call it my cabinet. And I have a cabinet of typically five people. And those people sometimes will rotate, right? As I have that cabinet, I tell people that they're in it. You're a person that I want to be able to reach out to. I want, I want to be able to have conversations that are 100% real. I want you to, to provide whole honesty, and I'm going to provide whole transparency uh, back and forth. And, and I've had folks uh, throughout my career as they've moved around. Uh, my CFO was always one of those guys, a uh, super talented individual who had 25-plus years of experience uh, doing M&A. Uh, and there were, there were so many things over the years that Scott would tell me about the right way to do things in business to make things easier later. Simple things like don't mix like uh, country club memberships into your business. Uh, and, and especially it becomes difficult if you have four or five people who have certain percentages of ownerships, just don't do it. You know, keep your finances as, as clean as possible. Business expenses are business expenses. Even though some people can think, well, it's country club and I'm going to take, you know, clients out there. Well, if you're a government contractor, you don't have any clients you're going to take out. And so just keep everything clean. I had experts in leadership that I met when I took uh, my team up to the their leadership development group up at West Point. There was one guy that became part of my part of my cabinet, an amazing individual. And, and, 
and had a thought process completely different than mine in many instances would make interesting. Um, I reached out to guys that, that I thought uh, down the road would be good guys to have as part of my network. Uh, an M&A guy uh, who, by the way, we ended up going with a different company to sell just because um, it, we saw some things that uh, we liked better in the other organization. Right. Had a lawyer uh, who was part of that group. I have a retired two star general who was part of that group, uh, who remains part of that group. My brother has been part of that group for years. And, um, and, and, and I think every, everyone should have it and should be people from outside of, outside of your business for the most part. This is a great uh, transition or segue into our last segment, which is called Giving Back. A lot of listeners here are grads, some aren't grads, a lot of people, you know, considering, you know, I guess different transitions from the military to the business world, in the business world, et cetera. You are doing a lot now, it seems like, as a director on boards, um, you've done a lot with various sort of nonprofits, doing stuff with the Johnny Mac Soldier Fund, the Wounded Warrior softball team. Like, can you talk a little bit just about your how you're giving back now and what that means to you? So I'll, I'll tell you this: I have an eight-month-old at home, which is you know kind of random because I'm not the youngest guy in the world. But uh, we were blessed with a little baby boy about eight months ago, and I will tell you. What that has taught me is that uh, my most valuable thing that I have is my time, right? And so I offer up my time uh, to anybody who wants it. I just don't want them to waste it. The last three years, I've, I've spent more time with uh, with younger grads getting out, getting out, uh, starting companies, senior guys, uh, full bird colonels getting out, wanting, wanting to know what their options are and, and uh, should they go work for a big, should they work for a small. Um, and I find those conversations so rewarding. And sometimes uh, they go, wow, your viewpoint is very different than someone else. And I'm like, well, I, I come from a different different vantage point, right? I ran a small company and I, with the help of others, turned it into a mid-sized company. And so my viewpoint's a little bit different. It doesn't make it right or wrong, right? Everybody has different opinions. And, and I think you can learn from having conversations with uh, just a plethora of different people who have different uh, vantage points uh, and backgrounds. So I love giving back by spending time with with uh, younger grads who are getting out, uh, mentorship, friendship, whatever they need. You know, sometimes sometimes people just need to vent a little bit, and by all means, I'll talk to I'll talk to those folks too. I will I will tell you one of one of my passions is giving back to nonprofits. I support a ton of them with my time and and my financial resources. Uh, the one I spend probably the most time and I'm most passionate about. The Johnny Mac Soldiers Fund, uh, which is named after a, uh, a 1986 grad who was the goalie for the soccer team, um, was killed in Afghanistan and left uh, five kids at home. Now, his classmates did a great job of pulling together and making sure those kids were taken care of. Uh, and there were there were then a few few gentlemen from the class of 86 uh, who got together and said, hey, we made a difference here. Let's keep making a difference. Now, for me, it's personal because because Johnny Mac was one of the guys at West Point uh, who took care of me. Uh, he, he was one company over. He was always stopping by. Hey, how you doing? Um, so he's one of the reasons I made it through West Point. Uh, the other thing is, uh, and this goes back to coming from a, a long line of military service. My grandfather was killed in World War II uh, right before the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and he left behind a 10-year-old daughter. Um, eight to 10 year old daughter who uh, 
who then would would go on uh, and go to college under the programs that were available back for for World War II vets, but they ran out of money, right? And so so my mom never graduated college because there wasn't it's not that there wasn't a will, there wasn't a funding. And my grandmother, who worked at Sears, certainly certainly wasn't the person who was going to be able to put her daughter through college. Uh, so the Johnny Mac Soldiers Fund is an organization that makes up the difference from what the federal government will provide through GI Bill benefits uh, for those those sons and daughters of our soldier sail, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, Coast Guard folks who have passed in service. And, and there's always a little bit of a gap. And so for me, I'm passionate about it because because of two very well connected people to to my family. And I see the difference that it makes for for these kids who have the ability to go to college and, and uh, improve their lives. Bob, unfortunately, this is all the time that we have for this episode. We'll have to have you back for two, I think. Um, but absolutely incredible to hear about your story as an entrepreneur. What you're doing now to give back is just remarkable. So thanks again for making time for us. Congrats on the eight-month-old. And yeah, this was just a blast. Appreciate it. And I'll say this in closing, and I'll be quick. This world's what you make it. But you got to make it and other people are always part of that. Right. And so relationships are so important. Uh, the folks that you're going to spend your time with, those are the folks who, who will help create you and make you who you are. Uh, so choose wisely. That's it. Amazing. Cool. That was awesome. Fun. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.